Chapter Thirteen of Home Life in Colonial Days by Alice Morse Earl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Jackknife Industries. Chepa Rose was one of those old-time chap men known throughout New England as quote, trunk peddlers unquote, bearing on his back by means of a harness of stout hempen webbing two oblong trunks of thin metal probably tin for forty-eight years he had appeared at every considerable farmhouse throughout narragansett and eastern connecticut at intervals as regular as the action and appearance of the sun moon and tides and everywhere was he greeted with an eager welcome chepa was as he said quote, half injun half french and half yankee unquote. from his indian half he had his love of tramping which made him choose the wandering trade of trunk peddler his french half made him a good trader and talker while his yankee half endowed him with a universal yankee trait a quote, handiness unquote, which showed in scores of gifts and accomplishments and knacks that made him as warmly greeted everywhere as were his attractive trunks he was a famous medicine brewer from the roots and herbs and barks that he gathered as he tramped along the country roads he manufactured a cough medicine that was twice as effective and twice as bitter as old dr green's he made famous plasters of two kinds plasters to stick and plasters to crawl the latter to follow the course of the disease or pain he concocted wonderful ink he showed jenny green how to bleach her new straw bonnet with sulphur fumes he mended umbrellas harnesses and tinware he made glorious teetotums which the children looked for as eagerly and unfailingly as they did for his tops and marbles his ribbons and gibraltars one day he came to the woods to john helm's house carrying in his hand a stout birchen staff or small tree trunk which he laid down on the flat millstone embedded in the grass at the back door 
while he displayed and sold his wares and had his dinner he then went out to the dooryard with little johnny helm sat down on the millstone lighted his pipe opened his jackknife and discoursed thus quote, johnny i'm going to tell you how to make an injun broom first you must find a big birch tree there ain't so many big ones now of any kind as there used to be when we made canoes and plates and cradles and water spouts and troughs and furniture out of the bark but you must get a yellow birch tree as straight as h and exactly five inch across now how can you tell how fur it is across a tree afore you cut it off i can tell you by the light of my eye but that's injun learning let me tell you by book learning measure it around and make the string in three parts one part'll be what it is across if it's nine inches round it'll be three inch across and so on now don't you forget that wow you must get a straight birch tree five inch across where you cut it off just like this one then make the stick five foot long then one foot and two inch from the big end cut a ring round the bark well say two inch wide just like this then you take off all the bark below that ring then you begin a slivering with a sharp jackknife little teeny flat slivers way up to the bark ring when it's all slivered up thin and flat there'll be a leetle hard core left inside at the top and you must cut it out careful then you take off the bark above the ring and begin slivering down leave a stick just big enough for a handle then tie this last lot of slivers down tight over the others with a hard twisted toe string and trim em off even then whittle off and scrape off a good smooth handle with a hole in the top to put a loop of cowhide in to hang it up by orderly yes johnny i've got just enough injun in me to make a good broom not enough to be ashamed of and not enough to be proud of but you mustn't forget this a moccasin's the best cover a man ever had on his feet in the woods the easiest to get stuff for the easiest to make the easiest to wear and a birch bark canoe's the best boat a man can have on the river 
it's the easiest to get stuff for easiest to carry the fastest to paddle and a snowshoe's the best help a man can have in winter it's the easiest to get stuff for the easiest to walk on the easiest to carry and just so a birch broom is the best broom a man or at any rate a woman can have four best things and all of em is injun now you just slip in and take that broom to phyllis i see her the last time i was here a-usin a miserable store broom to clean her oven and just ask her if i can't have a mug of applejack afore i go to bed Unquote. if this scene had been laid in new hampshire or vermont instead of narragansett the indian broom would have been no novelty to any boy or house servant or in the northern new england states heavily wooded with yellow birch every boy knew how to make indian brooms and every household in country or town had them there was a constant demand in boston for them and sometimes country stores had several hundred of the brooms at a time throughout vermont seventy years ago the uniform price paid for making one of these brooms was six cents and if the splints were very fine and the handle scraped with glass it took nearly three evenings to finish it indian squaws peddled them throughout the country for nine pence apiece major robert randolph told in fashionable london circles about the year seventeen fifty that when he was a boy in new hampshire he earned his only spending money by making these brooms and carrying them on his back ten miles to town to sell them girls could whittle as well as boys and often exchanged the birch brooms they made for a bit of ribbon or lace a simpler and less durable broom was made of hemlock branches a local rhyme says of them quote, driving at twilight the waiting cows with arms full laden with hemlock boughs to be traced on a broom ere the coming day from its eastern chambers should dance away unquote. the hemlock broom was simply a bunch of close-growing full foliage hemlock branches tied tightly together and wound around with hempen twine traced quote unquote, the rhyme says with a sharp-pointed handle which the boys had shaped and whittled driven well into the bound portion this making of brooms for domestic use is but an example of one of the many scores of useful domestic and farm articles which were furnished by the natural resources of every woodlot 
adapted by the Yankee jackknife and a few equally simple tools, of which the gimlet might take the second place. It was so emphatically a wooden age in colonial days that it seemed almost that there were no hard metal used for any articles which today seem so necessarily of metal. Plows were of wood and harrows. Cartwheels were often wholly of wood without tires, though sometimes iron plates called strakes held the fellows together. Be that's F-E-L-L-O-E-S. Being fastened to them by long clinch pins. The dish turner and cooper were artisans of importance in those days piggins noggins runlets keelers firkins buckets churns dye tubs cowls powdering tubs were made of cherry or no use of metal the forests were the wealth of the colonies in more ways than one, and it may be said that they furnished both domestic winter employment and toys for the boys. The New England forests were full of richly varied kinds of wood, suitable for varied uses, with varied qualities, pliability, stiffness, durability, weight, strength, and it is surprising to see how quickly the woods were assigned to fixed uses, even for toys. In every state, pop guns were made from elder, bows and arrows of hemlock, whistles of chestnut or willow. The Reverend John Pierpont wrote thus of the whittling of his childhood days, quote, The Yankee boy, before he sent to school, well knows the mysteries of that magic tool, the pocket-knife. To that his wistful eye turns while he hears his mother's lullaby, and in the education of the lad no little part that implement hath had his pocket-knife to the young whittler brings a growing knowledge of material things projectiles music and the sculptor's art his chestnut whistle and his shingle dart his elder pop-gun with its hickory rod its sharp explosion and rebounding wad, his cornstalk fiddle and the deeper tone, the murmurs from his pumpkin leaf trombone, conspire to teach the boy to these succeed his bow, his arrow of a feathered reed, his windmill raise the passing breeze to win his water-wheel that turns upon a pin thus by genius and his jack-knife driven 
ere long he'll solve you any problem given make you a locomotive or a clock cut a canal or build a floating dock make anything in short for sea or shore from a child's rattle to a seventy-four make it said i ay when he undertakes it he'll make the thing and make the thing that makes it Unquote. the boy's jackknife was a possession so highly desired so closely treasured in those days when boys had so few belongings that it is pathetic to read of many a farm lad's struggles and long hours of weary work to obtain a good knife barlow knives were the most highly prized for certainly sixty years and had i am told a vast popularity for over a century may they forever rest in glorious memory as they live the happiest of lots to be the best love of a century of yankee boys is indeed an enviable destiny a few battered old soldiers of this vast army of barlow jackknives still linger to show us the homely features borne by the centuries well beloved the smithsonian institute cherishes some of colonial days and from deerfield memorial hall are shown three barlow knives whose picture should appear in every american something more than the presentment of dull bits of wood and rusted metal these yankee jackknives were said daniel webster the direct forerunners of the cotton gin and thousands of noble american inventions the new england boy's whittling was his alphabet of mechanics in this connection let us note the skilful and utilitarian adaptation not only of natural materials for domestic and farm use but also natural forms the farmer and his wife both turned to nature for implements and utensils or for parts adapted to shape readily into implements and utensils of everyday life when we read of the first boston settlers that the dainty indian maize was eat with clam shells out of wooden trays we learn of a primitive spoon a clam shell set in a split stick which has been used till this century large flat clamshells were used and highly esteemed by housewives as skimming shells in the dairy to skim cream from the milk gourd shells made capital bowls skimmers dippers and bottles pumpkin shells good seed and grain holders turkey wings made an ever-ready hearth-brush in the forest were many quote, crooked sticks unquote, 
that were more useful than any straight ones could be when the mower wanted a new snaith or sneed as he called it for his sith he found in the woods a deformed sapling that had grown under a log or twisted around a rock in a double bend which made it the exact shape desired he then whittled it dressed it with a draw shave fastened the nibs with a nib wedge hung it with an iron ring and was ready for the mowing field sled runners were made from saplings bent at the root the best stills for a cart were those naturally shaped by growth the curved pieces of wood in the harness of a draft horse called the hams to which the traces are fastened could be found in twisted growths as could also portions of ox yokes the gambrels used in slaughtering times hay hooks long-handled pot hooks for brick ovens could all be cut ready shaped the smaller underbrush and saplings had many uses sled and cart stakes were cut from some long bean poles from others specially straight clean sticks were saved for whip stalks sections of birch bark could be bottomed and served for baskets or potash cans while capital feed boxes could be made in the same way of sections cut from a hollow hemlock elm rind and portions of brown ash butts were natural materials for chair seats and baskets as were flags for doormats forked branches made geese and hog yokes hogs that ran at large had to wear yokes it was ordered that these yokes should measure as long as twice and a half times the depth of the neck while the bottom piece was three times the width of the neck in the shaping of heavy and large vessels such as salt mortars pig troughs maple sap troughs the jackknife was abandoned and the methods of the indians adopted these vessels were burnt and scraped out of a single log and thus had a weighty stability and permanence wooden bread troughs were also made from a single piece of wood these were oblong trench-shaped bowls about eighteen inches long across the trough ran lengthwise a stick or rod on which rested the sieve circe or temsi when flour was sifted into the trough the saying quote, set the thames or temsi on fire unquote, meant that hard work and active friction would set the wooden temsi on fire 
sometimes the mould of an oxbow was dug out of a log of wood oftener a plank of wood was cut into the desired shape as a frame or mould and fastened to a heavy backboard the oxbow was steamed placed in the bow mould pinned in and then carefully seasoned the boys whittled cheese ladders cheese hoops and red cherry butter paddles for their mother's dairy also many parts of cheese presses and churns to the toys enumerated by rev mr pierpont they added box traps and figure four traps of varied sizes for catching very sized animals many farm implements other than those already named were made and many portions of tools and implements among them were shovels swingling knives sled neeps stanchions handles for spades and bill hooks rake stales fork stales flails a group of old farm implements from memorial hall at deerfield is given here the handleless sith snaith is said to have come over on the mayflower the making of flails was an important and useful work many were broken and worn out during a th great threshing both parts the staff or handle and the swingle or swipple were carefully shaped from well-chosen wood to be joined together later by an eel-skin or leather strap the flail is little seen on farms to-day threshing and winnowing machines have taken its place the father of robert burns declared threshing with a flail to be the only degrading and stultifying work on a farm but i never knew another farmer who deemed it so though it was certainly hard work last autumn i visited the quote, poor farm unquote, on quonset point in old narragansett in the vast barn of that beautiful and sparsely occupied country home two powerful men picturesque in blue jeans tucked in heavy boots in scarlet shirts and great straw hats were threshing out grain with flails both men were blind one wholly the other partially so and were quote, town poor unquote. their strong bare arms swung the long flails in alternate strokes with the precision of clockwork bringing each blow down on the piled-up wheat straw which covered the barn floor as they advanced one stepping backward while the other stepped forward and then receded with mechanical and rhythmic regularity a step and a blow from one end of the long barn to the other the half-blind thresher could see the outline of the open door against the sunlight and his steps and voice guided his sightless fellow-worker thus healthful and useful employment was given 
to two stricken waifs through the use of primitive methods which no modern machine could ever have afforded and the blue sky and bay with autumnal sunshine on the piled-up golden wheat on the floor and in rack idealized and even made of the threshers paupers though they were a beautiful picture of old-time farm life wood for axe helves was carefully chosen sawed split and whittled into shape these were then scraped as smooth as ivory with broken glass some man had a knack that was almost genius in shaping these axe helves and selecting the wood for them in a country where the broad axe was so important an implement used every day by every farmer where lumbermen and loggers and shipwrights swung the axe the entire day for many months men were ready to pay double price for a well-made helve so shaped as to let the heavy blow jar as little as possible the hand holding the helve one main farmer boasted that he had made and sold five hundred axe helves and received a good price for them all that some had gone five hundred miles out west others a hundred miles up country and of no one of them which he had set had it ever been said as of the axe in deuteronomy quote, when a man goeth into the wood to you wood and his hand fetcheth a stroke with the axe to cut down a tree then the head slippeth from the helve unquote. a little money might be earned by cutting heel pegs for shoemakers these were made of a maple trunk sawed across the grain making the circular board thin enough a half inch or so for the correct length of the pegs the end was then marked in parallel lines then grooved across at right angles then split as marked into pegs with knife and mallet a story is told of a farmer named meigs who on the winter ride to market in company with a score or more of his neighbors stole out at night from the tavern fireside where all were gathered to the barn where the horses were put up there he took an oat bag out of a neighbor's sleigh and poured out a good feed for his own horse in the morning it was found that his horse had not relished the shoe pegs that had been put in his manger and their tell-tale presence plainly pointed out the thief these shoe pegs were a venture of two farmers boys which their father was taking to town to sell for them and in indignation the boys thrust on the thief the name of shoe pegs megs which he carried to the end of his life when the boys had learned to use a few other tools besides their jackknives as they quickly did
they could get sawed staves from sawmills and make up shooks of staves bound with hoops of red oak for molasses hogheads these would be shipped to the west indies and form an important link in the profitable rum and slave round of traffic that bound africa new england and the west indies so closely together in those days a constant occupation for men and boys was making reeved or shaved shingles they were split with a beetle and wedge a smart workman could buy sharp work make a thousand a day there may still be occasionally found in what were well-wooded pine regions in shed or barn lofts or in old wood houses a stout oaken frame or rack such as was at one time found in nearly every house it was known as a bundling mold or shingling mold at the bottom of this strong frame were laid straight sticks and twisted widths which extended up the sides upon these were evenly packed the shingles two hundred and fifty in number known as a quarter with widths or binders which twisted strongly around when the number was full the mold held them firmly in place while being tied these were sealed by law and shipped colors of staves were regularly appointed town officers the dimensions of the shingles were given by law and rule fifteen inches was the length for one period of time and the bundling mold conformed to it daniel leake of salisbury new hampshire made during his lifetime and was paid for a million shingles during the years he was accomplishing this colossal work he cleared three hundred acres of land tapped for twenty years at least six hundred maple trees making sometimes four thousand pounds of sugar a year he could mow six acres a day giving nine tons of hay his strong long arms cut a swath twelve feet wide in his spare time he worked as a cooper and he was a famous drum maker truly there were giants in those days i love to read of such vigorous powerful lives they seem to be of a race entirely different from our own still among our new england forebears i doubt not many of us had some such giants who conquered for us the earth and forests one mark the shingling industry left on the household in the sawing of blocks there would always be some too knotty or gnarled to split into shingles these were what were known in the vernacular as unmarginable shingle bolts they formed in many a pioneer's home and in many a pioneer schoolhouse good solid seats for children and even grown people to sit on and even in pioneer meeting-houses these blocks could sometimes be seen 
other fittings for the house were whittled out long heavy wooden hinges were cut from hornbeam for cupboard and closet doors even shed doors were hung on wooden hinges as were house doors in the earliest colonial days door latches were made of wood also oblong buttons to fasten chamber and cupboard doors new england housekeepers prized the smooth close-grained bowls which the indians made from the veined and mottled knots of maple wood they were valued at what seems high prices for wooden utensils and were often named and bequeathed in wills maple wood has been used and esteemed by many nations for cups and bowls the old english and german vessel known as a mazer was made of maple wood often bound and tipped with silver spencer speaks in his shepherd's calendar of a mazer wrought of maple wood a well-known specimen in england bears the legend in gothic text quote, in the name of the trinity fill the cup and drink to me unquote sometimes a specially skilful yankee would rival the indians in shaping and whittling out these bowls i have seen two really beautiful ones carved with double initials and one with a scriptural reference said to be the work of a lover for his bride another token of affection and skill from the whittler were carved busks which were broad and strong strips of wood placed in corsets or stays to help to form and preserve the long-waisted stiff figure then fashionable one carved busk bears initials and an appropriately sentimental design of arrows and hearts on the rim of spinning wheels or shuttles swift and on ninny noddies or hand reels i have seen lettering by the hands of rustic lovers a finely carved legend on a hand reel reads polly green her reel count your threads right if you reel in the night when i am far away june seventeen seventy seven perhaps some revolutionary soldier gave this as a parting gift to his sweetheart on the eve of battle on his powder horn the rustic carver bestowed his best and daintiest work emblem both of war and of sport it seemed worthy of being shaped into the highest expression of his artistic longing a chapter even a book might be filled with the romantic history and representations of american powder horns patriotism sentiment and adventure shed equal halos over them months of the patient work of every spare moment was spent in beautifying them and their quaintness variety and individuality are a never-ceasing delight to the antiquary maps plans legends verses portraits landscapes family history crests dates of birth marriages and deaths lists of battles patriotic and religious sentiments 
all may be found on powder horns they have in many cases proved valuable historical records and have sometimes been the only records of events mr rufus a gritter of canajoharie has many colored drawings of about five hundred of these powder horns and of canteens or drinking horns it is unfortunate that the ordinary processes of book illustration give too scant suggestion of the variety beauty and delicacy of their decoration to permit the reproduction of some of these powder horns in these pages these habits of employing the spare moments of farm life in the manufacture of wood or farm implements and various aids to domestic comfort were not peculiar to new england farmers nor invented by them the old english farmer author thomas tusser in his rhymed book five hundred points of good husbandry written in the sixteenth century which southey declared to be one of the most curious and formerly one of the most popular books in our language was careful to give instructions in his remembrances and doings as to similar industries on the english farm and manor house he says quote, yokes forks and such other let bailey spy out and gather the same as he walketh about and after at leisure let this be his hire to beat them and trim them at home by the fire to beat that's b e a t h is to heat unseasoned wood to harden and straighten it Quote, if hop-yard or orchard you mean for to have for hop-poles and crotches in loping go save save elm ash and crab-tree for cart and for plough save step for a steel of the crotch of a bough save hazel for forks save sallow for rake save hulver and thorn thereof flailed for to make unquote. the massachusetts bay settlers came chiefly from the vicinity many from the same county where tusser lived and farmed and where his points of good husbandry were household words so they had in their english homes as had their grandfathers before them the knowledge and habits of saving and utilizing the various woods on the farm and of occupying every spare minute with the useful jackknife the varied and bountiful trees of the new world stimulated and emphasized the whittling habit until it became universally accepted as a distinguishing new england characteristic a yankee trait this constant employment of every moment of the waking hours contributed to impart to new englanders a regard and method of life which is spoken of by many outsiders with contempt namely 
a closely girded and invariable habit of economy children brought up in this way knew the value of everything in the household knew the time it took to produce it for they had labored themselves and they grew to take care of small things not to squander and waste what they had been so long at work on this instead of being a thing to sneer at is one of the very best elements in a community one of the best securities of character for sudden leaps of fortune are given to but few and are seldom lasting and the result of sudden inflations are more disastrous even to a community than to isolated individuals as may be abundantly proved by the earlier history of virginia it was not meanness that made the wiry new england farmer so cautious and exacting in trade when the pennies he saved sent his son through college it was not meanness which made him refuse to spend money he had no money to spend and it was a high sense of honor that kept him from running in debt it was not meanness which so justly ordered conditions and cared for the unfortunate that even in those days of horrible drunkenness often there would not be a pauper in the entire village it has been a reproach that in some towns the few town poor were venued out to be cared for the mode was harsh in its wording and unfeeling in method but in reality the pauper found a home i have known cases where the pauper was not only supported but cherished in the families to whose lot she fell End of chapter 13